I am so excited about um, the fact that we have got the opportunity to journey uh, into unpacking uh, our heart for worship, the, the, where it sits in our life, the, the, the resonance that it has, not just in a kind of song moment, but um, as a posture that we hold towards Jesus. And um, today, I really want us uh, to look at something specific that I think is going to be a helpful signpost for us. So let's look at the tabernacle. Who knows what the tabernacle is? Anyone knows the tabernacle? What's the, what is the tabernacle? It's a tent. Exactly, it's a tent. It has a few different names. It's the tabernacle, uh, the, 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 the place of meeting, the sacred tent, um, the, the glory gazebo. Um, it wasn't called that. Um, although that would have been lush, wouldn't it? The glory. I'm good to enter the glory gazebo. It's fantastic. Because, you know, barbecue outside, gazebo, doesn't matter. Um, so I just want to look at, look at the tabernacle. But what we've, you know, that, mentioning that, the tent thing, the image I think that comes to our mind when we use the word tabernacle is the actual tent of Moses, you know, the one that God told him about and that they got a bunch of artisans together to, um, to make things out of wood and to layer it with gold to embroider pomegranates on the hem of the ephod and all that kind of stuff, um, that they, would, they built a physical space where God could dwell in the middle of a community, Yeah. Make sense? That's the, that's the thing that we picture. And what I would love us to do this morning is to actually look at three versions of the tabernacle that are not that one. Is that okay? Yeah? Is that good? Are you excited about that? Good, because this I feel like for me in my journey as somebody who kind of needs to do more than just sing songs. Um, this has been for me like one of the, the most important signposts for what it means to lead worship. Because leading worship is a bit of a weird thing. I don't know if you, who, who's led worship in the house today? Who's ever led worship? It's a bit weird, isn't it? Because like, it's not like a spiritual gift. It's not like in the Bible. You don't go to like, well, here's the gift of the worship leader. And uh, you put on that mantle and the hat. And then you do your lunging and off you go. It's not, that's not how it works. Um, and I, I kind of got a bit perplexed about it. It's like, where does that sit? How does that work? Or even... Should we even be doing this, you know? Because we don't have like a, this kind of over biblical reference that we can go, yeah, this is here's the scripture and verse. This is why we do what we do, the way that we do it. And um, and I just had, I was having a conversation with a friend, and in the course of the conversation, just got to a place where like, do you know what? Although I might not be, it, it, it's not that I have this kind of office in the sense that you would maybe talk about in regards to the, prof- the prophetic or the, uh, apostle, uh, the preacher, teacher, um, evangelist, you know, it's, it's pastor. It's not necessarily that, but do you know what? I'm a, I'm a prophet in order that I can lead worship. Does that make sense? You know, that, I, that I operate in, in the apostolic in order that I can lead people into the presence of God. That he equips us. And I, what I love about that is that that's actually... I think something that taps into some of the culture of this family, that, that you know that you are somebody who makes video, but you are a, a, a prophet in order that you can do that. That you are a teacher in order that you can enable people to step into a place of revelation, in, regardless of this, the situation and environment that you're in. That you are, uh, you know, that you are uh, somebody who is apostolic, in order that you can actually be a doctor and, 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 and do that kind of stuff and push forward and design culture and, and enable new things to happen that weren't previously happening. You know, and I believe that. 
And so I feel like this is a model for all of us that we get to say, do you know what, even though my job title doesn't necessarily have like a scripture and verse, do you know what, God has empowered me and enabled me to step into that. So that's the context. Um, so the, as, you, as you looked at, the, I don't know if you can picture the tabernacle, there was the holy holies, the holy place, and then the outer courts. Um, and I want us to kind of maybe change our perspective a little bit because when we think about the tabernacle, we think about the brazen altar. We think about the, 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 in the place where you would bring your sacrifice uh, for atonement. Yeah, at one meant that we become at one with God. So there's the sacrifice. You've got the laver for washing and for purification. And then as you step into the holy place, you have the altar of incense. You would have the table of the showbread. You'd have the menorah, the candle, and then you'd have the big curtain. And then you'd step into the holy of holies where you have the mercy seat, the gold box from Indiana Jones and the, yeah. <laughs> you know the one I mean, with the little angels and the melty faces, that box. Um, and that was the place where God actually physically chose to dwell in the context of that community. Um, what I find fascinating is that actually the brazen altar and the laver were outside of the tabernacle. That the tabernacle itself really only housed the altar of incense, which represented the presence of God. That's a perpetual offering. It would continually be that case. You'd walk in and be that, that kind of fragrance of God in that space. That the table of the showbread, another perpetual offering, represented the fellowship with him, that we get to hang out with him. That the menorah, the, 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 uh, the cantalabra with seven candle bits on it, it was oil, um, that represented the tree of life. And there's this like, hang on, this, this is sounding familiar. There's something, something going on here. And then the curtain with the cherub on it, um, very reminiscent of like this, the, the, the angel with the flaming sword who was guarding the way where? to Eden, and as a step into the holy place where God chose to dwell, we realize actually that there is, in the tabernacle itself, this wasn't an original design, this was a copy, this was a recapitulation, it was a reimagination of Eden. And so, what we see in Eden is that space of the presence of God, fellowship with Him, the life, and the tree of life, and that that life everlasting access to God himself, to walk with him in the cool of the day. Isn't that beautiful? And in fact, the brazen altar, where the, the, the offerings are made for atonement, and the laver, where the, where the washing happened, was something that was added on in order that we could enter in. Does this make sense? Um, so what I want us to think about now, just quickly, is the physical space that we step into. Um, because Eden... Uh, some people call it the microcosmos. It's this idea of this canopy and this context within which we have connection with God and relationship with God. And it's, the idea is that we have a covenant. We have a, a relationship. We have a connection, a promise that um, has like uh, boundaries that make sense of that. It's like a marriage. You know, if I just went off doing whatever I wanted, Lucy would have words with me. Um, rightly so, because there's, a, there's, a, there's an agreement that is made about what it looks like for us to be connected. Does this make sense? And so the covenant is kind of like it's the, it's the context where everything else happens. You know, the, even the, the, the table of the showbread had this um, 
rim around it, and the idea was that it was to stop things falling off and becoming defiled. It like kept everything in place, kept everything holy, kept everything right. And it was God was almost in the picture of that, saying, "I'm I'm going to I'm going to build a, a, a kind of almost like a fence around this friendship." So I want, I want, it's precious to me. It's precious to me. Um, and that covenant gives context to the connection that we have with God, the relationship we have with him, but also the commission that he gives us. And I know Sarah's been preaching a storm, hasn't she, over the last few weeks. And we're thinking about the, um, the cultural mandate that we engage with to make sense of the earth and its raw material that um, noise... Uh, becomes music, that line making and color become art, that rock and, and dirt becomes buildings and architecture and roads and infrastructure. It becomes society. And we're all part of building that. And that was what God said in the beginning. Go, subdue the earth, make sense of its raw material. Lean into that. That's, your, that's what I've given you. I want you to name the animals, call them crazy stuff. Duckbill platypus, what the heck is that about? You know, the stuff that I've got given you to do that's not just like a random task. It's responsibility and authority in the space of relationship and connection with God. Isn't that cool? And so that covenant provides the context for connection and commission, ascentness. Now we see this being rem- this, what I love about this is that it kind of talks about and it draws a picture of the relentlessness of God as he chases after us. Because what happens in the garden? Sin. Sin happens in the garden. Something breaks. The, 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 kind of the, the infrastructure of that covenant, something broke as we not just did a bad thing, but we chose to trade that connection and commission from God. We traded that walking with him in the call of the day for stuff. You know, Romans talks about this, doesn't it? That we, we traded the image of God for images. And so we traded um, the glory of God. We traded the glory of God for images of men, animals, and reptiles. And then we're given over to all kinds of sin. And it's that the, the act of sin is almost like that not seeing God for his worth not seeing him for who he is, and that that then ends up in us trading it and trying to actually fill our lives with all kinds. Because we, self, we self-medicate at that point. Because we need him. So we self-medicate and fill our life with all this other stuff. And actually, um, God didn't leave us stuffed at that point. He chased after us. And what we see through Scripture is like a, a reimagining of that space. Um, but what's hard is that that space of Eden often then breaks into a place of exile. Yeah? A place of exile. Whereas Eden looks like that covenant um, within which there's the connection and the commission, exile looks like, instead of covenant, looks like dysfunctionality. Instead of connection, looks like disconnection. And instead of commission, looks like a disempowerment. And it manifests itself in rather than being a sent people, we become scattered. Does that make sense? So... There's a few ways, I mean, there's lots and lots of ways that this happens, but I want, I want you to just even very briefly just picture the, um, the different Edens and exiles that happen as we run through the narrative of Scripture, that we, we have Noah and the ark, and that, that place where, uh, almost like the ark being this, this place of covenant, that, that like you know, the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters in creation, there's this moment of connection. In the ark um, with Noah, there's this, this, this 
this promise and this reconfiguration and then um, recommissioning to go out and subdue the earth. And there's this moment of tabernacling in that space as, as God has to kind of rejig the whole of creation. Um, but that breaks way into Babel, where we try and get to God ourselves. And, and we end up, rather than being sent, being this scattered people, confused and all over the shop, yeah? The family, the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this kind of God reinstigating some, this, this kind of heart connection with a group of people. Uh, that family ends up in slavery in Egypt. And the exodus, the, the liberation and new community of this whole nation being drawn out, no, you're no longer just a family, but a nation being drawn out of captivity into the place of, um, of freedom and liberty, but not just that, the new community of Sinai, like this is how to live, this is how to love one another, here's a space and a context where you can encounter me, build the tabernacle, build a place of meeting, the glory gazebo, meet me in that space, I'm going to be right in the middle of your community, I'm going to be there with you. And, and the Exodus is, again, this reimagining of Eden, but then that breaks, breaks away into the season of the judges, you know, uh, time and time again, falling away, um, syncretism, you know, just kind of leaning in, because they had big stuff, big iron chariots and carts and things. They had industry and uh, technology, and, and the Israelites were like, what do we do? And so they just kind of like keeled over, and there's this whole season which just almost proves that violence just doesn't really fix it, <laughs> you know? Um, you've then got David, the first eternal covenant that's marked uh, between God and a human, and, and this beautiful space where the, what was um, a space for a nomadic Community actually becomes a temple for a nation. And they mark this space when it's bigger. You know, it's just it's the same thing, but it's bigger. It's kind of, you know, it's to, to, to do a bigger job uh, with a bigger people. Um, but the, that leads to the northern exiles of the Ten Kingdoms and the southern exile uh, of the, t the two remaining kingdoms out into Babylon. And uh, which, is, which is tough. And the, the, um, the temple is sacked and all that kind of stuff. And it eventually comes back round to Nehemiah and Ezra, you know, that whole thing of them rebuilding the walls, rebuilding the temple, creating a space. Uh, but that then leads into 400 years silence between Malachi and Matthew. And in that time, you've got the establishment of the Jewish religion, of all the Jewish sects, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. You've got the, the um, massive um, oppression towards women in, all the, in the additional laws that they added into the law. You've got, um, you end up in a space where you've got Roman occupation, and you've got a secularized monarchy and a secularized priesthood. And so although you might look at it physically and say, well, they had the temple, they had somewhere to go, but actually, um, uh, N.T. Wright talks about this in his book, Exile, that they, even though they had the physical stuff that would suggest that they weren't in exile, they had the mindset of exile. They had the mindset of exile, and that's really important. So that's the first picture of tabernacle that I want to give you, is that it's, it was, you've got all these different tabernacles, in a sense, not just the tabernacle and the temple as a physical space where you go into, but that there was something about that, the heart of that, um, where covenant connection and commission existed, that was, isn't it beautiful that that existed in Eden before the fall? And that really the, the brazen altar and the labor were kind of like an add-on in order to, to create a way back into that space. Now what happens next? Next, next slide. Jesus. Can I get a whoop? Yeah, so urban. Um, <laughs> so, um, 
this is what is incredible about this. And if you read the Septuagint, which I obviously don't do, um, it's, it's the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And the word that they use for tabernacle is skenu, S-K-E-N-O-O, skenu. Everyone say skenu. It's a great word. It's a very satisfying word. Um, so skenu is the, um, the word they use for tabernacle. And they use the same word in the first chapter of John where it describes um, what uh, what is happening is Jesus is God incarnate, um, God becoming man, putting on flesh and blood. Um, it says this, uh, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. I mean, there's a whole load of, not- I mean, this this one verse is like going to blow your face off. It's incredible. I mean, it, it refers back to, to Exodus where it talks about the hesed of God. You know, this is, this is the nature and the, 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 the personality of God that he is um, uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is the kind of the, the Greek version of that. And they're basically saying Jesus is the manifest hesed of God and he is tabernacled among us. He is the skenu and the glory, that presence, that dwelling presence is within that. How flipping cool is that? So uh, the fancy like cheeky word for this is that Jesus is like the anthropological tabernacle. Everyone say anthropological tabernacle and then rub your belly and pay your head at the same time. No, joking. Um, and it just means that what was a building or a place or a tent actually becomes a person. A person that we encounter God through the person of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool? So in that space, um, Jesus becomes the atoning sacrifice. And through the waters of baptism, we come into the place of covenant, new covenant, connection with God and commission. And we talked about that last week in terms of the great commission to, to go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing in the name of the Holy Spirit. And I just love this. Now, I want us to look at the, the, the kind of overlapping dynamics here because I often feel like when we come into a context like this where we have a gathered space where we say, hey, do you know what? The, part of the goal here is to be in the presence of God, to worship together, to see him for who he is and just to lean to that, to remember him, remember what he's done, remember who he is. Um, I genuinely feel like there's a space where we end up um, a bit on the back foot. Um, I, I was, um, I was really reading a great book and it, uh, called in Creativity Inc. And Ed Catmull, who's the CEO of Pixar Animation, made all the cool films, um, he gathered all his chief kind of execs and his um, producers and, and directors and he got them in a room. They'd done Toy Story, they'd done um, Ant, Ant Life. Well, not Ant Life, that was the other one. Bugs Life, that one. Bugs Life, they've done Toy Story 2, uh, they've done Monsters, Inc., and they've done Finding Nemo. All massive box office smashes. And he got all of these people in a room and said, guys, who here feels like they belong here? No. Who feels like you deserve to be in this place? No. Who feels like an imposter? And every single hand went up in the room. Every single hand. I mean, they'd literally made these five or six incredible movies that had changed the way the movies are made forever. And they all felt like imposters, like they didn't deserve to be there. And I really, I really feel like there's, and get, don't get me wrong, it's not binary, it's not you either are or you aren't, 
or you either are or you aren't. You know, I think one of the things God's been speaking to me a lot about is that we need to move away from binary thinking. It's, it's not the we're either in or we're out. It's not that you're either good or you're bad. It's not that you either won or you failed. It's like there's a, there's a journey, isn't there? There's a journey for us. And so I, I, I think what's really important is that as you hear this, don't lock yourself into a binary space. Don't lock yourself into like, oh, no, yeah, I feel that, so I'm just that. Um, discover the journey in it. I hope that makes sense. Um, but I feel like there's a dynamic, and this is why it's beautiful in Luke 15, that, that kind of little um, mark of three stories of the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and, and the lost son, and where it lands in that space where it highlights the idea that you've got um, a younger son who actually comes with this kind of orphan spirit. I don't belong anymore. I don't have a, a home yeah, I'm not, I'm not a son in a house anymore. Maybe I could go back and be a slave. There's this orphan spirit. So he, he again, goes, in, goes approaches the house, but from, uh, from an orphan vantage point. And then you've got the older son who's, like, in the house, um, but he has this whole scarcity mindset where he's like, I've just got to get on. I've just got to, I've just got to work in and get my head down, get on with it, and all that kind of stuff. And, and the father's like, no, you don't get that I'm always with you and everything that I have is yours. Do you not get it? I'm here. I'm here. And he beckons that son back into a place of relationship. And I really believe that although, although we know that Jesus has done it, I think often our starting place isn't from within the covenant. It's actually from the mindset of without. We don't begin from the place of being in Eden, which out of interest was off to the west. And when they were exiled, they went out to the east. And the tabernacle and the temple were always set up so that as you journeyed from the outcourts into the holy place, into the holy of holies, you traveled from the east back into the west like you're coming home. And that's what we do when we gather together. We're we're home. And do we choose to believe that we begin from that space? Or do we choose to believe that we've got to start from outside and kind of be good enough to get in, you know? Kind of be like, if, I, if I've been good enough this week, or if, you know, maybe just in this moment, I'm posturing myself well enough towards Jesus that he kind of loves me at this moment. But I know that the rest of my life is a mess. And I really believe that we've got a massive shift to make in the Western church, in the way that we describe the gospel, because actually, if the intoning sacrifice of Jesus and the waters of the baptism are the way in, it's done. It's done. It is finished. And so we always start from this place, which is why we can always begin with thank you. It's why we can always begin with thank you. Now, What's nuts about this is that God takes it even further. Because he doesn't just stop with, with, um, with Jesus as the anthropological tabernacle. He actually makes a choice to say, do you know what, I'm going to do this through you guys. And the church becomes the new, new tabernacle. Now, all the way through Scripture we saw, whether it was kind of, um, you know, Moses to, to Babel or, you know, any of that other stuff that we go through, David to exile and, all, and um, remnant to 400-year silence, the pattern was always that Eden just kind of broke and ended up in exile, yeah? Um, 
in that place of you know, dysfunction, disconnection, and disempowerment. Now, what is beautiful is that as Jesus comes and finishes it, it's finished and done once and for all. And so there is no more context for exile. It doesn't exist. There's no more context for us as the people of God to break away out of covenant ever again because he's done it, because he's finished. And Isaiah said, of you know, the, the, the extent of his government, there will be no end. Do we believe that? If Jesus is who he says he is, it is done. It is finished, and there will be no end to his government and to the goodness of who he is and what he's achieving and what he's establishing in the earth, which is the restoration of all things. Um, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22 says this. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling, a skanu. That's the word it uses, a skanu, in which God lives by his spirit. So the skanu has become the skanu, has become the skanu. And now we, the church, are no longer in peril of exile, but we become a new exodus, a new people liberated and established as a new community with a new commission to go and to recapitulate that idea of Eden that we are called to be people with a cultural mandate to transform and to renew the earth in which we live, in every sphere that we work in, in every sphere that we show up in. That is what we've been called to. And it's, it's a journey. One of the beautiful images that the Bible uses to, to kind of describe this motion of the sentness is that of the river. Uh, you know, John 7:38 talks about the river that flows from us. You know, and he's, he's picking up on um, two really significant visions, one from Ezekiel and one from Revelation, um, where the river of God flows out of the, which gate? North, east, south, or west? The east gate. Isn't that interesting? That the river flows from the altar out to the east, out to the brokenness. Did you know that when Moses, um, sorry, when Abraham rested to worship, he had Bethel on his west, the house of God, and he had Ai on his east, the broken place, rubble. And he stood in the middle of the story, he stood in the middle of the journey, and he worshipped. That's our posture. That's our posture. Because we are sent out to the east to bring life wherever we go. When the river ran, trees that were by the edge of the river wouldn't just bear fruit once a year. In, like we've got an apple tree and it bobs out apples in September. Every month there'd be fruit. It's supernatural. Fish would start to come out of the, 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 the Dead Sea and the saltiness would be gone and life springs up. Revelation takes that picture even further. It says, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and then the curse will be lifted from the land. It's reimagining of Eden. It's a journey. So the question, am I in or am I out, is now completely the wrong question because we are it. So how can I be out of something that I am? It doesn't make sense. Yet we behave like that so much. 
And how on earth are we ever going to feel the authority to go if we don't feel the permission to come? How are we ever going to feel the authority to go if we don't know the permission to come? And our heart is that this truth of the gospel and what Jesus has afforded for us radically changes the way in which we lean in as we come into that place of worship. That we become a people that are sent out like a river. Last thing, then we're done. Is that okay? Yep. Yep. Good. Okay. The Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the place where God chose to dwell was, was a perfect square. Everything else was a rectangle. This was a perfect square. And it was the place that we would visit. You know, the, the priest would go in once a year have a rope tied around his ankle, sailor, and then would go in, and it, just in case he died, and they could be dragged out again. Yeah, but that's what it was—a perfect square. When you fast forward to to Ezekiel, Ezekiel has a vision of a new temple. But what's fascinating about this vision is that the city where the temple is is a perfect square. And it's almost even then in the Old Testament, there's a sense of like a place that we visit. It's not enough. It's got to be a place where we live. It's got to be a place where we dwell. And you push forward further, and the, and the vision that we have in Revelation of the new Jerusalem is this, I mean, and, and what I love about this as well, is that God makes a garden, we make a city, <laughs> bad idea, goes wrong, yeah? And um, there's the instance of Eden and Babel. So you might think that when God finally gets his way again, he's going to make a nice garden, Roses, maybe a prize marrow, whatever you know, whatever you think. But actually, when God paints a picture of what um, what heaven looks like, it's a garden city. It's a place of collaboration. A city is is a, is a quintessential uh, space for collaboration and innovation. And His vision of the future is something where we've done something together with Him. How nuts is that? But what's cool about that is that whereas the Holy of Holies was a square, Ezekiel's vision of the city was a square, the vision of heaven is a cube. It's the 3D reality, the dimension of heaven and the dimension of earth colliding in a space where we get to almost design with him and recapitulate Eden with him as we come as the bride into that space of his presence. Isn't that gorgeous? I, that probably gorgeous isn't quite the right word for it, but it's flipping amazing, isn't it? And so that is what we would love um, us to kind of step into as a people. Um, I was watching a guy chat called Andy Andrew Corson, who's um, he's a, a, a minister of a church in Colombia, about forty thousand people. Um, Imagine the kids signing in for that one. Um, but um, he, was, he was asked once, why, how come the, the worship is so passionate in your church? How come it's so passionate? And he just said, holiness. Holiness. When you feel holy in the presence of God, there's no reason why you can't lean in and be in complete abandon. And I had a thought of like, yeah, do you know what? How many times do I lean thinking, actually I'm carrying shame with me today? And so I don't feel worthy of that connection. 
And so I end up beginning from the posture of exile and the mindset of exile that I am an imposter. That I am operating out of an orphan spirit. That I feel like there's scarcity for me, maybe not for other people, because I know that God's good and he'll heal them and he'll be generous to them, but maybe not for me because he knows what I've done. Yeah? And what is hard is that holiness sometimes feel like the prerequisite to the presence. Make sense? Holiness can feel like the prerequisite. I've got to be holy. I've got to get it right somehow in order to make it okay that I'm in his presence. Whereas actually it's his presence that makes us holy because what we behold, we become. And so again, we start from, because he's done it, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you've afforded for me. Thank you that you would, man, consider equality of God not something to be grasped, but would come and be obedient even unto a cross that I could know you. And so as we come into worship, let's come into that space of worship from a place of gratitude, believing that we're his children, believing that we actually can be there. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Well, only those with clean hands and a pure heart. I'm like, dang it. But actually, do you know what? That's all of us because Jesus has done it. <laughs> How cool is that? So as the band come up, um, I just want to read us, because um, obviously it's good that it's biblical. If there's heresy today, really sorry. We're all on some sliding yeah, scale of heresy, aren't we? <laughs> um, I just want to read to you from uh, the, the, the scripture that uh, Sarah brilliantly mentioned. We didn't share notes uh, earlier on today, which is from Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. And it says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that's opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider how we spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. We breathe into his presence and we breathe out into the world. We breathe into his presence. We stir one another up for love and good deeds and breathe out into the world. Why don't we stand together and just begin in that place of breathing. Just be aware and conscious of your breathing. We breathe into his presence. We breathe out into the world. Breathe into his presence. We belong here. It's been afforded for us. We don't contend for this. And we breathe out into the world.